out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, Karen Hagloff, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and everything else. But... In her life, as you'll find out in this interview, she was in a group called A Band of Susans, or just Band of Susans. And um, so that was for a short period of time, and then went into a sort of more of an academic career and has come back very recently um, to release three, if not four, albums um, starting in 2014 with Western Holiday, which we will talk about, so you'll get the gist when you hear the interview. So I won't spoil any more. Anyway, this is Karen in conversation. So after several minutes of casual chat that I edited out, because you don't need to hear that sort of excitement, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years of one's musical development, as we do. So um, I've just been talking about my love of early glam from the 1970s, and Karen then replied with this exciting bit. Make notes. I will test you at the end to make sure you are paying attention. I'm, you know, a decade earlier than you. So, you know, in in 64, I was nine, I think, or 10. And uh, the first seed, I think the first 45 I ever bought was Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry. I don't know if you even know that song. Yes. Kind of a country Delta blues Thing. It was on the radio and, you know, we had, I lived kind of far out in the country with, uh, you know, a little group of eight houses out in farmlands and there was a store about a quarter mile down the road and we would go and there was a little music shop there and you could buy um, singles and records and things like that. So we'd always go through the, whatever was on the radio at the time, which would have been, you know, when it was in fifth, sixth, seventh grade. And I'm remembering, you know, of course, the Beatles, that was when I was in third grade. And then, um, you know, things like like uh, the Dave Clark Five and Paul Revere and the Raiders and very, very pop type oh, oriented stuff. Fantastic stuff, actually, because yeah. I kind of come from the countryside. So it's not a very exciting childhood. It was kind of, you know, based in a village miles from everywhere so we didn't get any scenes for about five five or ten years no this is all you know on the radio on the school bus on the radio hearing songs the school bus yes this is where this is where we got a lot of our music and excitement was a school bus Mm -hmm. so what was it like were your parents because my parents were quite into country music in the that 60s and they still are a bit well, probably quite a lot, really. So it was like things like Jim Reeves and Tammy Wynette and Charlie Pride and, you know, Dolly Parton. That, that was a kind of country. And then people like Teresa Brewer and, um, you know, Elvis Presley as well yeah. and, and those kind of characters. So what were your parents like? I mean, my, my, my mother was a huge Andy Williams fan. I mean, both my parents, Andy Williams, um, you know, Moon River and all of that. And uh, Mahalia Jackson and, and Sarah Vaughan, you know, these, you know, wonderful gospel and, and blues and jazz singers, um, Harry Conniff singers. It was very kind of, I don't know, a lot of, uh, you know, mainstream pre-Elvis type of stuff. Yes, pre-Elvis, kind of soft, soft Kind of yeah, kind of really. soft, uh, easy listening, I guess was what you would call it now, but uh, yes. very, very uh, strong melody lines and, you know, kind of full, you know, back, backing vo- vocals and good vocalists. And uh, So did you have kind of music lessons or guitar lessons when you were sort of... I, I, I took the clarinet when I was in fifth grade. That's a know, classic, isn't it? Band. We it had the recorder cool. instead, but that was kind yeah, of just a cheap alternative. Was, the clarinet and then uh, bass clarinet when I you know just I didn't practice enough on the clarinet so I had to you know switch to the bass clarinet and then and then uh, this music store that that was down near my my uh, you know our little uh, homestead area was uh, turned into like a an actual guitar store and uh, sold amplifiers and all the local musicians from the area would come there. So that was pretty intriguing for like a, you know, teenage girl. And it's like, well, what, what should I do to hang out there? Well, I, I think I should probably take some guitar lessons. God, that's and a good so, move. Wise choice. Yeah, it was, it was a very good move at that time. It was like, what's yes. a good reason to hang out in this store? Well, I could be a guitar lesson student. So what part of America was this? 
Minnesota. Minnesota, right. Yeah, in the heartland. Blimey O'Reilly. Because I know Lemmy from Motorhead said that um, one of the reasons he got into music, he saw a kid at school when he was quite young walking with a guitar and all these girls just followed him about. Yeah, no, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it was a no-brainer at the time <laughs> it's, a, it's like okay I'm gonna pick a guitar up and walk into school the next day and see if it works and hey it did so he was yeah, in the Rock and Vickers in the in the 60s before joining wow. Hawkwind so then in the early 70s was your kind of musical and and sort of kind of adolescent awakening really wasn't it yeah and uh, you know I'm, I was in my first band in like 74 when I was like 19 or so and we we did covers of uh, like the girl groups from the 60s. We were an almost all girl band. There was uh, one male character in every permutation of the band early on. And we played Led Zeppelin covers and Rolling Stones covers. And we did some David Bowie and we did uh, Iggy and we did some some MC5. I mean, just very random kind of, uh, um, you know. Were you sort of quite politically motivated at that stage? Because obviously, you know, the 60s with the kind of the glory period of 67, then we had Woodstock and the Charles Manson and then the death of, you know, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin and Hendrix, which obviously is a bit of a downer. But then there was Vietnam yeah. as well. So you had, you know, and Watergate creeping up. So were you getting very angst about life? And obviously the, the sort of shooting of students in... Uh, um, Ohio. So, um, so I, were you were you sort of a radical student at that stage? I wouldn't say radical. I guess I would say that you know you you only grow up in the one period you grow up, and so you don't necessarily know that oh, this is really outstanding things that don't usually happen. I mean, I think it, it's kind of like oh, this is just how life goes, kind of a feeling, and maybe maybe feeling a little insulated from all of that. I mean. Uh, not really being in the center, but I was probably a little young um, for, you know, like the Vietnam War protests and things like that. And uh, so I don't think there was a lot of political motivation as much as just, you know, wanting to get out there. I, I, I will say that, you know, as an almost all girl group, we were really very motivated to prove ourselves as women that we could play just as hard and rock just as hard and yes. do whatever the guys could do. And that was always, that was probably the motivator more than anything else, you know, being, having people come up to you after a gig, men usually, or guys usually, and saying, oh, well, you know, you play pretty good for a girl. Well, it'd be, nice, <laughs> it'd be really nice to get rid of the for a girl thing. And that was probably the biggest, you yes. know, motivator. I know, it could have been. So were you aware of the band Fanny, which was kind of... Oh, yeah. I just wondered, were they quite a influential group in America for sort of young, you know, say radical know. feminists? You know, we had, I, I'd heard of them, of course, and then there was Susie Quattro, and then there was this, this, um, um, there was this local band called Vixen, which actually had a national following that was an all-girl group of very, you know, proficient musicians, but I don't think I, I knew much about Fanny in terms of knowing their music at all. Yes. And were you, and just on that bit of, you know, like the singer-songwriter, which is why I slipped that in, but, you know, we had Joni Mitchell with Blue in 1971, then we had Tapestry with uh, Carol King in 71 as well, and there's that kind of the growth or the birth of, of the sort of sensitive singer-songwriter. Were you, were you sort of getting those albums and playing them, you know, until the vinyl sort of wore out, sort of getting writing angsty poetry? No, no, it was never an angsty poetry. I, <laughs> not, not until my 50s and 60s, then, you know, that. That was, that was a delayed but, reaction to angsty poetry. <laughs> yes, like, didn't need it back then. <laughs> playing in the bands. And yeah, we were, we were very interested in being punks, you know. Punks? Like, God, you yeah. were very early days, because there was like... Yeah, you know, yeah, this was pretty early days. I guess 75 or so. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it was, you know, by... You know, I mean, at that time, Minneapolis was kind of a hotbed for... for suddenly had become this hotbed of, of bands that were doing their own music, not just cover bands. And we had the Suicide Commandos, and, uh, you know, we had um, uh, the Flaming O's, and we had Curtis A and his various permutations of groups, and a lot of other people that I can't think of the names of right now, which I really should be able to, but... Uh, it was a very lively scene of, of um, kind of um, stripped down, uh, more punk oriented, um, 
original music that was coming out then. Yes. And, and the we, wanted to, we wanted to be, I wanted to be a part of that. Well, absolutely. Because it's kind of interesting because in the UK, you know, we are it's such a tiny little place that, the, you know, like, A, things just spread quite quickly around the whole country. But in America, what I gather, and this is slightly guessing, but slightly, you know, is that the H region is very, is a little world in its own, isn't it? It's kind of like, if you, I, I, if you had a scene in Bristol or Leeds or Manchester, you know, it's like it, it kind of spreads quite quickly. Whereas in America, you had, you know, New York, L.A., you know, you had Athens, Detroit, Georgia. and, and yeah. yeah, and each Kansas scene, City you know, and Minneapolis, and yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's quite a deal to turn tour around the country <laughs> on a shoestring, you know, you know, you can't do it that easily. Uh, yes, you know, well, what later I found, on, yeah. So what I found with a lot of British bands who split up, and there were several reasons, you know, you'll you'll, re, you'll know them all. But for the UK, it's often going to America. They often say, oh, and then we went to America, and I guess they're going to say we came back and we split up, because it kind of just destroyed them in so many ways. And I think it's just no one, they're not prepared for that kind of slogging it out in, in there. And then I spoke to uh, Miles Copeland, who was you know, the mm. manager of the police. And he said that yeah. the police, the police played. I was in a band that opened for the police in Minneapolis. <laughs> Did you? Well, he said, what very are they? Early on when they, were, they were traveling in a station wagon. This was very early. This is, well, Miles said that their most important gig was in front of four people, but one of them was a DJ who sort of played, you know, their song and got them on college radio. But he said it was in front of four people. They had to yeah. slog it out. So there you go. And I think most British bands, you know, they're kind of quite big in this country. They come to America and they're playing like they've had enough of it. You know, they just think this isn't, I'm, I'm going home to my mum. Yeah. <laughs> so then as the 70s, yeah, so Minneapolis. Okay, so in the 80s, Huskadoo, Prince and all that. But then, oh, yeah. <laughs> Replacements, then, yeah. So, so that you, um, yes, so you were sort of already committed to the world of rock and roll and punk. Yeah, yeah. And did the guitar come very, you know, easily? Yeah, because I practiced all the time, you know, you back then. That was like the thing to do. It was like, you know, especially taking guitar lessons and, and uh, early on taking guitar lessons and having to go show off at the music store, you know, in front of where all the cool guys were. So you wanted to make sure you knew your stuff. And it just kind of, so what we did was, you know, so what I did was play the guitar, practice the guitar. Yes. And was there any particular guitarist that you were... Uh, thinking, you know, you just copied a lot. Because a lot of people loved Hank Williams. No, Hank Marvin from The Shadows. Uh, I think, you know, probably, you know, Chuck Berry and uh, Jimmy Page and uh, Keith Richards were, you know, definite role models and idols. Yes, absolutely. So then as, as the 70s progressed, did you stay in Minneapolis or did you move on? No, we, I uh, moved to New York City in 1979. 79 so mm -hmm. with so, a band oh what was the band called again it's called the crackers um there was a the the suicide commandos was a very you know well known and still well respected and well-known band in in minneapolis um that were the forefront of the punk kind of attitude there and and uh they broke up and their bass player steve almas formed a band and i was the guitar player and uh, we had a keyboard player Mark Goldstein and a drummer Jay Peck and we decided it was more of a power pop band than than you know as stripped down I mean it was still very stripped down just a you know guitar keyboards bass and drums but uh, decided we were going to move to New York City it was like well we should either move to LA or New York well let's go to New York City I guess it was cheap wasn't it well it was cheaper in, in retrospect. I mean, now looking back is like, damn, I'm, that apartment was $75. I can't believe that. Yeah, I wished I bought it. But, um, but, but you know, I mean, as a still, a, it was definitely a culture shock from Minneapolis where I was able to work in a music store myself and uh, pay my rent and uh, go out to all the clubs and then come to New York, which is a huge pond. And you are a tiny fish in the huge pond and, uh, you know, having to find a job that wasn't necessarily music related and find some kind of new, you know, scene and people to hang with and find out what the bands are and try and get established and get gigs and all of that. So, yes. And at that stage, were you, you know, going to Max's Kansas City and CBGB's and sort of. Oh, CB's. Yeah. CB's definitely. There was a club tier three 
to the Mud Club. I don't think we ever played there, but definitely, you know, hung out there and Max's and and how did you manage to avoid? Because it's kind of speaking to a lot of bands from that period and who'd been around. You know, a lot of them struggled with avoiding drugs. Did you? Did the band hold it up together? Because I get the impression it was quite a, a heavy scene, or just easy to get hold of lots of drugs. There was lots of drugs all over the place, but you know, you either. I mean, we none of us were really big partakers of that. That's a lucky move. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's that Minneapolis upbringing. That was a very lucky move, wasn't it? Because <laughs> frankly, the, the members of, I don't know, um, who was the famous band who was Johnny Thunders and, and that bunch? Oh, they, the, the New York Dolls. Yes, they, that, they, didn't, they didn't sort of survive that at all. But also yeah. New York had that sort of amazing sort of rockabilly scene as well with the Rockettes and people yeah. like that who were sort of around. So then as, as, how did Crackers perform or, de- you know, develop during the sort I mean, of... We, you know, we, we were able to put out an EP, which was... Um, you know, Mitch Easter, who from North Carolina joined the band. Um, and um, we ended up recording an EP uh, down in North Carolina that uh, he did, you know, all the, the kind of the production work on with Steve and uh, put out an EP. And then basically, you know, it was kind of like New York's hard on you. So people, you know, we just kind of it broke up, you know, <laughs> just one of those things. Yes. And then obviously scenes change. So, you know, in this yeah. country, we had the, you know, the punk, the post-punk period. And then sort of 83, the sort of indie world kind of exploded in the UK with bands like the Smiths. And then there was like other bands like the June Brides and Yeah, Yeah, No. And and then in Australia, the Go-Betweens and the Triffids. So where did you go next for the, the I, your journey I, in the 80s? I went, I went uh, kind of avant minimalist. <laughs> I, I ended up playing with the uh, avant composer Reese Chatham, um, who is famous for his hundred guitar orchestras. Um, he, um, a lot of his music is very um, based on overtones and developing overtones as you're strumming like an E chord or, or various, you know, kind of more dissonant chords. And all, all of his music is scored out in, in you know, actual score form. But uh, definitely a very heavy, I don't know, rhythmic vibe. You know, he, we had Jonathan Kane from Swans on drums on several of Reese's uh, permutations. And uh, for a while, you know, I played in the art rock scene, more or less. Uh, Robert Longo, the artist, had a band and I played in his band. And uh, that went on probably throughout most of the 80s and then in the later 80s uh, ended up Robert Poss and Susan Stenger ended up also in Reese Chatham's group which led to me then joining them in the band of Susan's at some point you know yes and then things got very excited didn't they because you know were you on the John Peel any of the John Peel sessions yeah we did the I was on the John Peel session with uh we recorded Because of You was the one that I remember because I sang one of the vocals on it and I love that Band of Susan song, and I put it on one of my own records. So, you know, it Blimey. always comes to mind. So so was this the first time you were starting to tour outside America? I, we toured with, I toured with Reese a lot in uh, Europe. I mean, not a lot, a lot, but, you know, we definitely been to London and, and Scotland and uh, to the Netherlands and uh, West Germany, it was at that point and uh austria so northern europe yes and And being from the uk we love any sort of obscure bands coming from america so obviously you know huskadoo was a big one anything that steve albini was in and then the butthole surfers and early Mm -hmm. sonic youth so when you know the like and the lunar chicks so when the band of susans appear you know we instantly going to love them because it's like oh obscure band no one else has discovered them so obviously that's with good. a lot of guitars and it's very loud and it's, it's very, very rhythmic and very kind of layered it's just kind of how i like it plus you were on blast first records which yep. the label which was a very hip that was was that paul yeah paul's name i can't last name i can't remember but uh i keep thinking paul smith but then that might be the fashion guy, i think it? it is paul smith I think it yes. is Paul Smith. I, I'm, I'm sort of slightly, yeah, let's all Google that away, actually. That will make yes. good radio. Paul Smith, I think it 
is Paul Smith. He probably is. I'm also thinking, God, is that the guy? So what was, were you on the first album, Hope Against Hope? I was not on the first album. I was on the Love Agenda album, which yes. um, I think was the one after that. So when the band of Susan started, there were three Susans, hence the name. And uh, Susan Stenger is the bass player and Robert Poss. It's basically they are the core of the band. Um, and then um, Ron Spitzer was the drummer. And then there was Susan Tallman and Susan, whose name I can't, last name I'm not recalling now. But those two Susans ended up uh, leaving the band at, at uh, different points. And I was a replacement for one of the Susans. Yes. And how was it sort of going into a band that had already sort of had a few you know, years under their belt and, and had already recorded, you know, with the it, dynamics? It, I mean, I think we knew the dynamic was going to work pretty well just because I'd played with with both Robert and Susan in Reese Chatham's group. So and we toured together. So we kind of knew each other's personalities and, 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 you know, knew what to kind of expect musically on a certain level. And so it was it it wasn't 100 percent seamless, but I think it, it, you know, it meshed together pretty well. I mean. I definitely wanted to be all aboard of whatever, you know, the vision was there. I wasn't really necessarily looking to do my own kind of uh, music or anything like that. I thought that their vision was well-formed and I wanted to be part of it. Yes. And did you feel like it was, you know, you were, as you said, on a mission? Because it was kind of 89 the album came out, which was the same year as Bleach. So there was, because in what I found in the sort of doing this show was that there'd been this kind of almost a scene for five years of, you know, indie pop, I suppose. I mean, there was other scenes as well and a certain goth world, but there'd been this kind of time of the Smiths between 83 to 87 and lots of jingly jangly stuff. And then mm-hmm. there was a change. There was ecstasy came along and then there was a sort of a bit of a shift towards the dance scene and the next group of 16 to 18 year olds wanted their kind of soundtrack, I suppose. And then the Seattle grunge scene came over and started to sort of excite people. And obviously mm-hmm. the band of Susans was kind of, you know, again, looked upon I mean, as- we're, Yeah, we're kind of, along those lines <laughs> wouldn't really you know put us straight in that category but along those lines yeah yes and with the, with that particular album which was the one lower agenda did Love you tour agenda, that quite yeah. a lot um i think we toured it pretty much i mean we definitely toured europe and did you know you know the states in sections you know so uh I'm not remembering exactly how much we toured, but we definitely toured on the record and and mainly college sites and and, uh, got a lot of uh, got a a lot of good response on it. Yes. And you did a cover of the Ronan Stones track, didn't you? Child of the Moon on that particular album. We did. Yep. Whose idea was that? Uh, That was I think that was a joint Robert and Susan. Yes. Venture. Yes. Yeah. And that was also, you did one, you also did that on the John Peel session as well, didn't you? I think we did. Yeah. Yes. So then what happens on the follow-up album? Um, let's see. What was the follow-up album? Is this the one, yeah. the word and the flesh? The word and the flesh. I don't even remember if I was on that. I'm going to tell you straight up if I was on that or not. Word and the flesh don't know so when did you I mean what happens then with your musical kind of career after that well uh, you know at that point you know this it was kind of like you know I I loved playing and touring but at some point it is it is hard and you're trying to go back to your you know your basic job where you make enough money to live in New York and then you go out on tour and then you come back and you try and maintain try to keep that job and yes. I was cooking in restaurants and uh, working in restaurants as my kind of day job and uh, wondering if this is really the direction I wanted to go in I'd been playing music for quite a while and thinking that maybe I should you know change things up or maybe I should you know kind of you know, when you're in your mid thirties and you're going, well, am I still doing this? What if I, do I want to be doing this in 10 years? Should I be? And I was at about that point that I decided I'd go back to college. Right. And what did you go for the art degree? Yeah. So I got an art degree 
um, in studio art, basically because I had a year of art credits from the University of Minnesota from back when I was 17 and quit college and uh, finished that degree. And then I went to medical school. You, blimey, you were really studying through <laughs> the 90s. Then you? I went to medical school and then I went into yeah internal medicine and, and hematology and oncology. And so now I'm a practicing hematologist and oncologist. Wow. But then you bring the guitar out again and do a, you Yeah, do a... and then I was like, yeah. <laughs> so was this, because your solo albums came out yeah. um, in the last kind of decade, basically, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I spent, I spent, my, I spent the 90s going to school and the 2000s kind of finishing Work. school and being in training and getting kind of established in what I was doing. And, you know, it's funny, the grass, maybe the grass is always greener, or maybe you're still, you know, maybe people are multifaceted, and they can do more than one thing at the same time, or they can be interested in more than one thing at the same time. But at some point, it felt like, you know, I actually, I can tell you exactly when it started is when I went and saw It Might Get Loud, um, the movie with... Um, Jack White and The Edge and Jimmy Page and they are all going through their their musical backgrounds and how they came to be where they were and their different influences and there was great old film clips and I remember seeing you know clips of Jimmy Page from about you know when I would have seen him live yes. back in you know the day and I thought I play the guitar why am I not playing the guitar it was like a reawakening is that at that point the guitars had been in storage and basically not played at all for probably 10 years. Nice. I, think I played one, one gig in medical school. I mean, it, you know, the medical world is very, very, you know, overwhelming. I guess very it, focused, isn't it? You can't be very just focused and you can't uh, blag yeah. it, can you really? Uh, yeah, I don't think you can, or I couldn't anyway. Well, I think some people do, but. Yeah, I think some people do, but well, I, they get you know, a bit sued later. Either they're on. really, really smart, way smarter than me, and uh, they, you know, all just all just crooks, really, aren't they? They just yeah, they just kind of get had up. Uh, you know. But yes, but so the, yeah, it... so that's when that's when I decided, and I decided at that point, well, I'm probably not going to be in a band again. So how could I enjoy playing music? And I started learning like open tuning fingerstyle. Um, from YouTube clips and just like, cause I used to be able to finger pick back, you know, in those, those few moments when Joni Mitchell would have gotten in back, you know, in the olden days. Yes. And, uh, started to try and pick out melodies and, uh, you know, put songs together. And, so uh, was your first solo album, this one, Western Holiday, was this the yeah. kind of first recording? Yeah. So did you bring your, a band together for this or did you try to... I, I called, I had four kind of songs together. And my first idea was, I want to record these songs and make some videos and put them on YouTube. That was the extent of my plan. Yes. And, plan. But I, you know, having been out of music for so long, I thought, well, I have no idea how people do this these days. So I um, emailed Steve Almas, who was my bandmate from the Crackers and who was still, you know, very active in music and had a band beat rodeo and, you know, still playing with the Suicide Commandos and uh, just put out a record, you know, months ago, a new one. Yes. And, and he's always been somebody who knows how to get things done. And I knew he would probably still be that way. And he immediately, you know, he listened to what I had and he thought it was interesting and that we should do more than just put four songs on YouTube. Let's make a record. And so that was the beginning of all of that. Fantastic. My God, it all sort of came together. Yeah. And then Steve found this great drummer, um, Charlie Ross. And it was basically Steve and myself and Charlie who did the bulk of everything on the record. We had Mitch Easter play on something and, uh, you know, recorded it in uh, in Brooklyn and, and mixed it in, in North Carolina with Mitch Easter and um, and just just put it out there. <laughs> God, you did really get the bug, didn't you? You really sort yeah. of, you really sort of got it again. And did it, and did you sort of, after that sort of spell or period away from music, do you sort of feel much more energized and sort of curious of, 
more sonic you know soundscapes. what i i have nowadays or since then i have a much more a much stronger interest in in writing and you know trying to realize my own material and i didn't ever really do that so much in band of susans or with reese chatham where you're more you know realizing somebody else's vision and i was very happy to do that then but now it's like I, maybe i've taken all of their influences and stolen them and tried to you know take my own take on things but yes uh, this is the it's first time i've written a bunch of songs and uh you know put them out there and said okay let's see what we get here yeah and did you i mean because most bands you know going back to that kind of the narrative of the 80s you know they would get together especially in the early 80s because there's so much unemployment people were sort of often claiming some sort of social security or job mm -hmm. seekers allowance and they'd spend 12 months kind of messing about i mean we're talking you know 18 year old kids here um and then they get a single job lucky play. i wish i could have done, done <laughs> this when i was 18 i know like, so so uh, there was that kind of you know, John Peel would give it a play, then you get the John Peel session. So that was uh, good progress. And every yeah. city and town in the UK has a kind of an indie night. So you, you could get kind of gigs around the place quite happily, mm -hmm. which would lead to the first album and then, you know, things going well, but then the second album, a bit tricky. And then, you know, bands yeah, would then split up on the third. Thing, yeah. yeah, I know. And the third album, definitely the kill. But, you, you know, your solo career, you managed to sort of almost have the same kind of pattern of bringing out three albums within sort of five years, which is quite a phenomenal, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Output. I really felt like I got to, you know, I got to get some of this stuff out there. I felt like, okay, if I get three records out, then I can maybe feel like I have a body of work out there, you know. Right. You or what, whatever, you know, people make of it, it's it's like a body of work. It's like, okay, there's <laughs> there's enough there that you can see that there's different facets of it and, uh and did you enjoy yeah, really being the, the front person and having your name rather than a band or having collaborators? Was it much more enjoyable being being the person in charge? I don't know. That's always that's a double edged sword there. You know, being the person <laughs> in charge, you're blamed or you're praised. So, you know, you get a little bit of both of it. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think it. I, it, yeah, I mean, I guess it is within your own project. When it's your baby, you want to see it through. So when you brought the follow-up, Perseverance and Grace, did you mm -hmm. stick with the same lineup and the same? Yeah, wave? same, same, same everything. Same studio, same players, same kind of. You know, I mean, I'm working a, a full, more than full-time job, so all this kind of took place kind of. Um, organically i mean it wasn't like we said okay we're gonna go in the studio for a week and we're gonna put down these songs it was like all right i got this weekend you guys around let's nail down two songs and then i go back in and do overdubs or do them at home and you know it's like definitely a process of, of over months yes and, and sometimes but so well, it's yeah, interesting you know, because there's another artist called Amelia, Amelia Fletcher who was in Tallulah Gosh and then Heavenly and now is on lots of different, you know, little projects. But she's got, a, you know, a full-time job at the, you know, UEA teaching some sort of economics and politics. But then mm -hmm. in the evenings and weekends just crams in her music. But I think she's now so used to it that she probably doesn't waste too much time. And, they, and there's an, always an urgency to get things done because you well, haven't that's got... Kind of that's probably why I did three records in five <laughs> years. It's like, we got to get this stuff out. Yes, absolutely. So as a creative person, how have you found the last year, you know, and or 14 months now oh. with this kind of lockdown? Because obviously you've got probably the, the benefit of having a job, which means you're not just sitting around thinking. Yeah, no, I, but, but I, I have a job in medicine. And so it's been very rough because, uh, you know, I generally take care of, you know, fairly sick patients with sick immune systems and, and um, malignancies and other benign disorders where they may be more at risk of COVID. And, you know, we got hit hard in New York um, last spring in April. And, uh, you know, it was very grim here, very, very grim. And yes. so to try and, you know, come into the office every day, talk to people on the phone, try and keep things going. I, I started to try and teach myself keyboards at home as a, a kind of a side project. There's no studio work going on at all, um, just because, you know, nobody was meeting up with anybody. So it was definitely a time of, of reflection, but, you know, I managed to 
you know, by the second half of the year, kind of get back in the studio and start working on stuff again. So, so does that mean you've got but something? Like, yeah, I, I put out a song on New Year's called Devastation Completed, <laughs> which was my, my hopeful, um, uh, you know, viewpoint of that, you know, the first lyrics are, it's been a long year. No one could argue that. No one would think, no one would look on these events and think we were on track. Such a hard year. Yes. Uh, and uh, did it to a drum loop because we couldn't really get a drummer in. And, you know, it's it's, a, it's pretty, I think it's a lot different than other things that I put out. Although maybe not, you know, yes. my year, it seems like it's going a different well, the great thing is you do have all your stuff on Spotify and various other platforms. Yes, I try to put it everywhere <laughs> in case some random person might hear it. And I'm, always, really very useful, pleased. So. <laughs> I'm always very pleased to hear, oh, yeah, I heard your song on Spotify. Like, really? That's great. That's yes, I know. I know the double-edged sword. I mean, if it was because obviously it's been an amazing long musical journey. I mean, if you could have said something to a, your younger self starting out, back in that sort of early 70s, your 16, 18-year-old self, is there anything that you would have sort of wanted to have whispered to them just to say, you know, as some sort of bit of wise advice or little top tips that you would have thought, look, there's a couple of points. It seems like, it seems like I probably could have knocked 10 years out somewhere, you know, like kind of, and I'm not sure exactly where those 10 years are, but it seems like there was a lot of kind of spinning wheels there that didn't necessarily need to happen. I would say not in the seventies so much, but maybe in the mid eighties and maybe a couple of years here and there. Uh, I think part of it has to do with confidence, you know, just not feeling underconfident in what I was able to do or, or my vision of things. And, uh, you know, so I think maybe I would have, you know, if I could go back to my younger self, I'd say, you know, just just be who you are. Don't be so worried so all the time. Right. Relax, so you had the, relax in it a little bit. Just relax. <laughs> so the inner voice of sort of doubt crept in. Yeah. Because uh, I guess a lot of people, you know, who get into being in a band, especially in the 80s. I mean, let's face it, you know, I mean, I'm sort of talking about the angsty sort of left of centre bands who are all a bit introspective. I think, you know, a lot of them did lose confidence and, and sort of often wondered if if they, you know, it's that sort of term, isn't it? Fake it till you make it. But I think some people just got like, they're going to be caught out and someone said, you never, you can't do this and just yeah, stop doing an it. You're an imposter. Now. It's imposter syndrome to the max. You know? It is. And, and I guess, you know, it must be difficult sometimes being an artist thinking, God, what am I doing? It's all been done before. Have you got anything, you know, has one got anything new to say? Yeah. Or, and you know you may you may get you know four good reviews, but the one you remember is the one where they tanked you. Oh my <laughs> God! I know. Like, my God, we all do like, that, don't we? Oh, <laughs> like oh, I know. I get around. Oh, he hated it. A lot of other people seem to like it, but you know. I know, I know, God, I know. You can go around quoting that last, that, those little lines, can't you, Jesus? They I just know. stick in your brain. They, you, they, you can't get the them out. human brain is, is uh, yeah. I don't know, how did people like David Bowie cope when he got slated on, you know, on such a, you know, not just David Bowie. I don't but, you know, know. And, and, and Bob Dylan when he went electric and, you know. Yeah, you must, you you must know, have some... To, armor really to to deal with that you know paul mccartney i mean he's done some shocking stuff but you know at the same time you know who cares but it must be hard to go what do they think of it and they go oh my god they all hated it it's a really terrible album but then thinking that's fine i can cope i'll just make another one next right. you know but then wondering if you're going to be able to make another one and, did, and will the um, other one be, be just as hated as that one yeah. <laughs> just as can terrible. i keep losing that and much why, money and why was it terrible was it terrible is my vision really wrong? I mean, yeah. sometimes when you're so sure that this will work, or I know this is going to be great, I know this will work, and then to find out that other people don't quite hear it, this can be very crushing. I know, but it should be expected because you know that's what that's the the glory of putting it out there. You know, you you get to at least try, and I think that's. You know, if, if you if you don't try, you won't know. So that's well. Very I suppose it's what Brian Eno was saying to David Bowie back in the seventies when they were doing Load. It was like, let's just go for it. No one's going to die. We're not we're not surgeons. It yes. doesn't really matter. And obviously, when they bought out Load and released it, and then gave it to the critics. People absolutely slated it. I mean, Charles Shah Murray from the NME 
wrote a long beer and he's just hammers it to pieces. Now he obviously has to sort of look and go, oh my God, I got it so wrong, didn't I? <laughs> you know, it was because, yeah, you know, because he, 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 he has to sort of, you know, he has to read that review you know, from several decades ago of what he wrote and then just put in, put his hand up and say, yep, I got that so wrong, didn't I? You know, I, I, I accept that. So well, you that's must... the other thing, yeah. If, if critics, they have to put themselves out there too. They have to, you know, decide what they think about what they're hearing and try and relate it to something else and, and you know, hopefully feel like they were justified in what they said or thought or felt about it. And yeah, it's a hard job too. So when you did your third solo album, is it Palomino mm-hmm. Steady Rockin'? That was the EP. And then there's another one, Tobiano. So actually I have four things out. Blimey, you have actually. You need to update your website, don't you? Oh, definitely. That thing is like, <laughs> is that even up? <laughs> there's, an, there's a later one called Tobiano, which came out just a few months after Palomino Steady Rockin'. Right. God, they, they, they're and, just good. Just Tobiano's the one that has Because of You on it, which was my Band of Susans cover. Fantastic. And you, that's the one you did with the John Peel session as well. Yeah. Did, you, did you find yourself changing quite a lot about how you were starting to write and record and, and sort of feeling like a different process happening? And, you know, it kind of, it's, it's it, all my songs are all different based on if I'm in open tuning or normal tuning or starting with a loop or starting with, you know, a vocal line. So I think there's a lot more difference on the later records compared with the first one, which was basically all I'm learning how to finger pick and I'm coming up with these, you know, kind of rhythms and and riffs. And then I'm, you know, writing against that kind of a thing. So, so do, I think the source material is much kind of more scattered now. You know, so I, the I lyrics know come late. Do the lyrics come last? Not all, no. Sometimes they come first. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the lyric, sometimes the idea is there, and the lyrics are all written, and then it turns into a song. And those sound completely different to me than the ones where I know I wrote the riff first and then came up with the the lyrics later. And, and and on that process, are you quite quick being able to write down the sort of your thoughts, your feelings on, on the lyric front? Do you have to rework it much? I, you know, I, I'm very perfectionistic about it, which doesn't necessarily mean it, it ends up any better after I'm done messing with it than if I would have gone with the first track. But I'm always like, oh, I said the word was here. I need a different consonant here. I mean, just like, you know, just thinking about how it's going to sound. And, uh, you know, oh, I use the word chain there. I can't use the same word here. and, And this is a stupid rhyme. And so, you know, some of it comes really easy. And then the kind of making sure it all pulls together and, and sounds cohesive, you know, generally takes a little bit of time. So but I, don't that mess, mean- I don't mess too much with the lyrics. I mean, I will, I will write them in the studio if, if need be. And it's like, oh, that sounds like, okay. So Yeah, well, it, it was one of those things with the John Peel sessions. I think a lot of bands used to go in half kind of with an idea and sort of hope that it would all come on the day. And, and who, do you, can you remember you're the producer of that? Because I know Del Griffith from Not The Hoople oh. used to be a lot of those ones. I on, don't know. On those we, should have Ro- we should have Robert Poss right here next to me because Robert from the Susans, of course, would know all of this. He would know all of it. I'm just having a quick look, actually. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it was you great. Have, that... You should have Robert on. If you no, have I think I have. But it was Mike Robinson, and that was yeah. kind of... So you, this was the one you did, um, 1988 was the first session you yeah. did with. So that was good. And then you did one the following year as well, which also had Because of You, which was the mm-hmm. one. And that was produced by Dale Griffith from Not ah. The Who, Paul. So okay. there you go. My God. And did you, because most people find that sort of experience at Made of Elle quite amusing because it's the BBC and they're all very stuffy and it's all very oh, beautiful. Great. But can you remember much about those sessions? I just remember it was in a huge room, you know, the, the room was huge. And then, you know, we were all like, you know, these baffles or buffers off, you know, with around the speakers and the, and the amps and everything. And, and uh, I, re- I can't remember how we did it. It didn't seem like we did the vocals at the same time as the, 
as the backing track, but maybe we did. I think we laid the vocals down later. Yes, blimey. I know, they, they always, actually, I find a lot of the John Peel sessions sounded better than the the studio albums that came out, you know, before or after. Yeah, those they sessions, seem, I, what, there's, a, nice. there's a, an immediacy about them that... Uh, and yeah, also the and, and also the engineer and producers are always very good. Did you yeah. enjoy your touring experience? I mean, obviously, sort of touring is one thing. Then sort of going to the BBC for a day to record a session, it must have been quite intense. But was it also a fun experience? It was very fun. Yeah, I mean, I knew the song, <laughs> I knew the material very well. It was you know in this beautiful studio and this storied studio and. Uh, you know, we, I think we made the most of it. I think it was, you know, a very good experience. And uh, it didn't, it felt like a triumph to be able to be, to be asked to do one of these and to be there. Yes. And did you feel a bit strange when Band of Susans were pretty producing new albums or did you had by then you just kind of moved on I, so I, I was in medical school I think you didn't, you didn't have time to I was like of, I don't, they're doing what I don't know yes yes I know you could have body yeah you would not yeah you nine, had a second to, think. to 99 I was like you know yeah. if, if it was not on a piece of paper and had to do with something about some kind of physiologic process I just didn't really know much about it I mean Time was just kind of scheduled at that point where, okay, I'm going to study these flashcards on the subway to medical school, <laughs> and I'll do these ones on the way back on the subway from medical school, and then I'm going to get out this other subject, and then, you know, it's like every, you know, I can remember calculating how many hours there were in the week and how many hours I could study um, to make sure that got everything that I could learn learn um, blimey that's that is so impressive do you sort of keep in touch with any of the past you know band members that you've been with um i you know i still play with reese here and there when when he's in new york i mean we just did this before i mean we had there was plans for 2020 that you know yes. never you know um we were going to in 2019 we had planned to play with the crackers on a gig with uh this band from um the suburbs from Minneapolis and that somehow fell through. It didn't have to do with the pandemic, of course, because it was too early, but uh, yeah, in 2020, there were plans to, you know, do some, some other shows, you know, for my, my own self and uh, you know, play with the, the crackers. I think there was another reunion show we were going to do. Everything just kind of disappeared. Yes. So, the last time I played out with anybody was in, you know, in uh, November of 2019 and uh, working with Reese Chatham and uh, there was a, a, a gala for Robert Longo at the Issue Project Room in Brooklyn and uh, got to play Guitar Trio G3 and uh, that was the last gig. And then we try to, you know, with Reese, Reese is in France and uh, Robert Poss is up in Boston and I'm in New York and Ernie, the bass players in Queens, and Jonathan, the drummers upstate New York. We tried to do, try to find a platform where we could all kind of play together at once. But there was just at that point anyway, there was no way to get around the delay between yes, all the different true. locales. So, yes, so that didn't anything come of it, unfortunately. Is it the case then? You're hoping that 2022 will be a year where you could sort of confidently put some dates down and do some more projects with those guys. Yeah, I think I think 2022 is going to be the year of exuberance. That's what my <laughs> prediction is. It's like, know. you know, 2021 is like, okay, we're going to be in our second roaring 20s so that I know of, you know, from the 1920s to now, we're going to have another roaring 20s. Everybody's going to want to just go out and, you know, live their best life. So yes, I know. I think we're all hoping that, aren't we? We've yeah. all had our... Have you had your two jabs? I got them very early on because I am affiliated with the hospital and they want me to go over there. So in order to have me work, yes, I got my vaccine. Yeah. Yes. Well, God, How about I you? Yeah, as well. I know. It's such a kind of relief. We're just kind of waiting for the next moment, really. But anyway, at least it's, it's summertime. It's a, not, this is nothing I ever thought that would ever occur in my lifetime. I don't know if anybody ever thought, you know, I think I'm probably going to live through a pandemic. and. Uh, 
Well, I, it conf- I think not confused my parents, but because they had been through the Second World War as small children, then they had the mm-hmm. 50s and, you know, rationing and, you know, all that kind of slight poverty, I suppose. And so they'd sort of, and their parents had ex- experienced two world wars, which were kind of horrendous. Um, right. Yeah, you know, I think, I think that, or... yes, I know that one, which was kind of like, blimey, it killed more people in the First World War. Um, yeah. You know, they, they, it felt like they had seen enough and probably you thought, well, there's nothing going to surprise us now. We've, we've had lots of you know news oh yeah that generation yeah absolutely and so this has kind of thrown them and and been at that age where you know I think they just feel a bit like us but a bit more sort of vulnerable really but also gets a bit lonely you know as well because well that's that's the hard part is you know the the lack of I mean zoom is great because you can see people and you can you know interact and uh and FaceTime is great for that too, but it, you know, human touch is very important and face-to-face in person is very important. And, yes. you know, and there's that- a sense, there's a little bit of a sense of despair not to have that. And, uh, you know, the loss of community uh, is big, yeah. really. So I yeah, think that's, it's, it's, I think we're going to have to work hard to pick it up again. I think but very- I, everybody that I've talked to is like, yeah, let's get out and play. Let's get this stuff going again. And, you know, we're not done. <laughs> I don't <laughs> no. plan to be done yet. No, this is true. So I, hope, I know any of those bands who used to always go, oh, I don't know if we want to get back together and play. And they did all that kind of stuff for years, if not decades. I think now they're thinking, right, I don't care. No more excuses. We want to just, yeah, you know, even if I'm having a problem with my bass player, I don't care. We've just been through 18 months of this boring hell. So let's yeah. get on and get out yeah, there. Even Genesis with Phil Collins, who's mm-hmm. you know basically has to sit in the chair and just rock back and forward. I think they're right. even going to tour as well. And so I think a lot of I think there will be a lot of touring going on at the end of this year. I seem to notice, and probably next year will be phenomenal. So yeah, let's let's hope. I mean, that's 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 my plan anyway. I don't yes. know if it'll really work, but. I know it'll be good. Well, look, Karen, thank you ever so much for this. This has been brilliant, and well, thank you for giving I me the hope, time. I I hope you got some things that. You oh my God, I got loads. This has been great, and um, yes, thanks a lot for sort of saying yes because obviously it's always good. And uh, yeah, well, look, best of luck. And if you want, I can always send you the link, and then you could yes, use please it. do, and then I can post I it, can, and people go. Ooh. Can put it in in Instagram and like, my Instagram and on oh my. Oh God, that's a trip. That'll be good. Anyway, yeah. look, thanks a lot and have a great day. Yes, you too. And I'm going to go to bed. So there you go. Okay, yes, I'm sorry it's so late for you. It's fine. It's not that late. Anyway, take care and all the best. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end the conversation. I love leaving that bit in. It's so fumbly for me anyway. So that was me in conversation with Karen Hagloff talking about Life in Music, The Band of Susans and her solo work, plus much, much more. This, though... David Eastall, um, I probably just said that actually. But anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. Um, keep it positive and nice, otherwise, you know, don't bother. And also, I've been um, doing all these interviews for a very long time, so there's a huge backlog, or not backlog. Well, no, there is actually, but there's a huge archive, and uh, you can access those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.